If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today's podcast guest is the historian Margaret Macmillan. I interviewed Margaret for the December issue of BBC History magazine about her new book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us, which explores the long intertwining of conflict in human society and charts how warfare has grown and mutated over the centuries. Your new book looks at a long history of war and its relationship to society from the ancient world to the modern day. Why do you think that it's enlightening to examine the history of war using such a wide lens? I think the advantage of going wide is that you can detect perhaps patterns, you can detect similarities, you can detect differences. It gives you context. And perhaps it gives us in the present a sense of humility that we're not that unique, that other peoples have fought in the past. And and I wanted to give a sense of the long intertwining of war and human society. And I think to look through the past helps to do that. As you mentioned there, the central tenant in your book is that war doesn't ever take place in isolation. It's very intertwined with societies of the time. What do you think that we need to understand about war's relationship to society that we perhaps haven't done before? Well, I think some of us have understood it, but perhaps there's been a sense that military history is something apart Um, It's toys for boys, you know, it's all about guns and it's all about battles and it's all about strategy and and so on. And of course, that's part of it because the ways that battles go and the sorts of weapons that people have really make a difference. But what I would like to argue, and I think a lot of historians are, are beginning to do this, is that we need to look at war in its much more intimate relationship with human society. Some kinds of societies fight particular kinds of war, and that reflects their own values, and other societies don't like to fight wars, aren't particularly good at it. And so I think we need to understand that. And I think also, for too long, we've tended to see war as something that is distasteful, which of course it is, horrible, which of course it is. 
but something we want to avert our eyes from. And I think we don't do ourselves any service by that as historians or as societies. I think we need to understand war. I don't think we have any hope of stopping it, in fact, unless we understand a bit more about it. What are some of the main ways in which war has impacted on societies through history? Well, I always see the relationship between war and society as a two-way thing. So it's not war just doing something to society, and it's not society creating particular types of wars. I think it's so intimately intertwined, it's very difficult to say which comes first and, and which is the more important. But ways in which wars have affected societies, they've elevated warrior castes sometimes who have then had real power within those societies because they control the force in society. Wars have also brought about social change. Wars have led to revolution. I think it's possible to, to imagine that Russia would have had a very different history without the First World War. I don't think the Bolsheviks, who were a tiny little factional party, could have taken power in Russia without the First World War. And that, of course, changed Russian history and also changed the history of the modern world of the 20th and, and even the 21st centuries. I think wars have, in some cases, benefited certain sections of society who were not well treated before the war. Women got the vote. It's an obvious example. But women got the vote in Britain, for example. Uh, many women got the vote. Women over 30 got the vote in, in, in the um, Representation of Peoples Act in 1918. And so did working class men. And I think those changes wouldn't have happened as quickly without the First World War. I mean, government simply recognized that it had depended a lot on labor and a lot on women to sustain the war effort. And you simply couldn't deny them the vote any longer. And what wars have also done is they've tended to compress big wars, demanding wars, expensive wars, have tended to compress the poles in society. The rate of taxation tends to go up in war, which means that those who have a lot tend to have to give a lot. And those who are at the bottom levels of society often come out better. Wages will go up, and as they have done in wars. And so there are those who argue that, in fact, the greatest times of social equality have been in the face of great catastrophes like war when we've all needed to pull together and when there's been no excuse not to do it. Picking up on that point about how war has some, um, sometimes fostered progress, another aspect of that would be technology and science. Uh, I wonder if you mm. could speak a bit about that. Of course. I mean, ha things happen in wars which don't seem likely or possible in peacetime. I mean, sometimes things are just too expensive to do in peacetime, but when a war comes, when it's a matter of survival, then suddenly the question of expense becomes less important. And the classic example probably is penicillin, which a lot of people use. I mean, the how to make penicillin, the, the properties of penicillin, the fact that it would cure hitherto uncurable diseases was discovered in the, in the 1920s and 1930s, but it was too expensive to put penicillin into production. It just seemed ridiculous. Second World War came and suddenly, of course, it's very important to keep your soldiers alive on the battlefields. And it became possible to produce penicillin on a very large scale. And it had an enormous impact on public health generally um, in the world. And so that's a very good example. I mean, what war will do is speed up innovation under the pressure of, of, of necessity. We wouldn't choose to make our advances those ways. I mean, it's a terribly costly way of making advances, but one of the paradoxes about war is it does often produce social, technological, and scientific change, which can benefit people in peacetime. Um, you mentioned earlier the fact that different societies um, lead to different kinds of wars. I wonder if you could give some contrasting examples. And what about a society, for example, means that war would be especially valorized, whereas in another society it might be condemned? I think it matters always in society who's in charge. And I think in the Middle Ages, those who were in charge tended to be those who had the military equipment, had the horses, 
were able to, to push other people around. And those who fought dominated their own societies, partly through sheer brute force. And of course, because it was very expensive, if you wanted to equip a knight in armor, you needed a lot of resources. And it was also expected in the Middle Ages, in Europe certainly, that war would be confined to such people. You didn't want ordinary farmers fighting because they were much more valuable on the farms producing food. And so you had a society in which military virtues were encompassed or, or permeated a particularly small class. And I think cultural values can matter a lot. I mean, you, you had in, in Prussia, for example, a sense that those who came from the upper classes of society had only certain careers that were honorable. And the most honorable of all was going into the military, but also working for the state bureaucracy or, or perhaps going into the church was also seen as honorable. And so young people were brought up in such societies, in such classes, to be brave, to accept discipline, to be prepared to sacrifice their lives. And so values help to produce the sorts of people who might go on to become combatants. And in other sorts of societies, of course, we don't value military virtues. I mean, I don't think in... in my own society, Canada, today, we particularly value people who are prepared to accept military discipline. We, we, we might regard them, in fact, as not having much imagination and not having an independent spirit. And so I think it does make a difference. And I think democracies fight wars in different ways from, from authoritarian societies, partly because they have different value structures. How so, that, that particular distinction? Well, in authoritarian societies, where you have militaristic values imbuing society, it is probably easier for governments to persuade people to go and fight. I mean, if it's something you grew up expecting you're going to have to do and, and expecting that you should die bravely on the battlefield, then you are already predisposed to become the sort of person who fights. In a democracy where every individual life is or ought to be valued, we tend to think that people shouldn't rush off and be prepared to sacrifice themselves. But democracies can fight wars when the public supports them. And I think we've seen in mean, the First World War, the Second World War had a tremendous amount of popular support in the democracies. It's one of the reasons those wars lasted for so long. And because people in those democracies felt that the war was, was a just war, that they were fighting a just cause. Democracies that fight unpopular wars end up usually not doing very well. And both the French and the United States had to pull out of Indochina because the wars they fought there after the Second World War were deeply unpopular with their own people and they simply weren't able to sustain them after a while. Um, to pick up on the point about the motivations or sentiments of ordinary people, you examine in the book um, the different reasons why individuals have gone to war over time. Can you give us some recurring themes that you might have found? Yes, I think it's interesting why people go to war and why they make soldiers and not. I mean, sometimes, of course, they, people can be made into soldiers. I mean, that's why training has always been something that the military, whether it's navies or air forces or armies, take very seriously indeed. Just the fact of having men march together, and, and now increasingly, of course, women as well, means that they will act together in unison. They will develop a, a cohesion. I mean, it's, it's a bit, I suppose, the analogy is a bit like a team sport. A good team is the team where it's, whose members will play for each other and not just for their individual glory and who will be, be prepared to subsume their own individual interests in the team. And I think that's very much what the military hope to do with individuals. But I do think um, there's been a lot of research on why people fight. I and mean, there's one thing about why they go into the military. Another is why they fight and what makes them good fighters. And, and I think more and more it seems that what really people in battle itself fight for is, is their fellows. They will fight for those they know and they, those they train with. And, and, you know, so many of the memoirs of wars, First World War, Second World War, say this, that, you know, I felt I ought to be with my mates. 
um, a classic German novel, All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, the narrator goes home and he said, I just didn't feel right being at home. He said, I wanted to be with my friends. They were going through something. I wanted to fight with them. And so I think, you know, there are all these grand con concepts like king and country and religion and whatever. And of course, people do, I think, get inspired by those. But I think when you look at what actually happens in battle, so often it's fighting for those who are beside you, who you rely on and you know that they rely on you. And so if you let them down, um, in a way, you're letting yourself down. Um, on the flip side of that, um, you also examine that the big overarching reasons why states and governments go to war. And something I found really interesting was that you said, while different excuses um, have been put forward for the beginnings of wars, and really there's recurring underlying themes as to why wars happen. What have some of those underlying themes been? Well, I think you can basically boil down the reasons why people go to war in, into about three. And of course, there's all sorts of subdivisions and we can argue about it. But I think people go to war out of fear. They need to defend themselves. They feel that, that those they love and themselves, their way of life is under attack. And I think fear is a very important motivation. I mean, sometimes you feel you have no choice but to fight. And so I think that's a very important factor, a motivation, motivating factor. I mean, secondly, or in no particular order, people go to war because they of greed. They want something. They want something that someone else has. And so they will go to war to take a piece of land. They'll go to war for loot. They'll go to war to take off the civilians on the other side, women, children, men, and turn them into slaves or carry the women off to become part of, of, of household establishments. We know that this happens. And I think the third reason, and often they overlap, is people go to war out of ideas. You know, ideas, as we know, can be very important motivating factors. People will fight and die for something like the nation. People will fight and die for something like the revolution, whatever they, however they define revolution. And people will fight and die for religion. And I think we've seen that time and time again. So really, I think it boils down to fear, greed, and ideas. So while those basic motivations may have come up time and time again, the means and methods of war have really evolved beyond recognition. Um, what do you think have some, been some of the main transformational turning points or developments in the history of war? Well, what will happen, I think, is a new technology will come along, perhaps, um, which may precede or may influence a new style of fighting. And so, for example, when horses began to appear, you know, we, we think they originally came from Central Asia, when horses began to appear in warfare, it suddenly produced warriors who were much more mobile, who could move very quickly, who could outflank troops on the ground. And so for a time, either people in chariots pulled by horses or warriors riding on horses really carried all before them. And repeated waves of invaders have come out of Central Asia. When you think of the enormous power of the Mongols, who created an enormous empire, and that was partly because, or perhaps largely because, they used the horse and they used the skill of their warriors on the horse to simply overwhelm troops on the ground. Gunpowder was another such innovation. You know, it was all very well to have wonderful castles with beautiful walls to keep people out. But once you got cannons sitting outside those castles, the walls became a lot less of a protection and, and they had to actually redesign. You know, if you look at medieval castles, they have these lovely tall walls. By the time you get to the 17th and 18th century, castles are much squatter and the walls are much thicker because you don't want lovely, beautiful walls that a cannonball can knock down. And so gunpowder made a huge difference. And then, of course, what made a huge difference in our time was the internal combustion engine. And so suddenly it became possible to move troops, the internal combustion engine plus the railway became possible to move enormous numbers of troops and crucially keep them supplied, which meant you could keep them in the field much longer. It also became possible, of course, to have things like airplanes. 
which could fly over and inflict damage on those troops on the ground, but also, of course, increasingly inflict damage on civilian cities. And so I think there are always innovations, and it takes a while sometimes for us to catch up with them and, and learn how to use them. But there are times when warfare changes enormously, and I think we saw it change hugely in the 19th century, partly as a result of the Industrial Revolution, and partly also as a result of the growth of mass society, increasingly societies in which people participated in their own public life and, and in the uh, affairs of their government. And that made possible the enormous and prolonged wars that we saw in the First and Second World Wars. I was going to say that's intriguing because that you mentioned the 19th century particularly there, because I think of m most people think of the 20th century as the century of war. Yeah. But you're saying it was all dependent on earlier developments. I think it really was. I mean, if you if you think, I mean, an example I often give is, is Napoleon took an army to Russia when he invaded in 1812. And it was probably about 600,000 men. And what really destroyed that army was, of course, the Russians themselves who fought very tenaciously, but it was hunger and it was cold because there was no way that Napoleon could supply that number of troops. And a lot of them just died before they ever got back to, to the Western part of Europe. By the 1870s, it was possible to move troops by train. And that meant the armies could be a lot bigger and, as I say, could stay in the field a lot longer. And if you look at the size of the wars, the scale of the wars in, in the 19th century are tending to get bigger. Um, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 involved literally millions of men, hundreds of thousands, up, you know, possibly two million men. The American Civil War involved huge numbers of men. And so you see really a growth of war in the 19th century, which means that when the First World War came, with its huge numbers of people fighting, they perhaps shouldn't have been surprised as they were. Um, you speak about the emergence of modern war in a lot of detail. What do you see as the hallmarks of modern war? Well, modern war, not today, but certainly the modern war of the 19th and 20th centuries was marked, I think, by the capacity of industrial economies to equip the men. I mean, it used to be that people made guns by hand and often very beautiful. But, you know, imagine how long if you're making lots of rifles or cannon by hand it's going to take. Once you get automation, once you get standardized parts, once you get assembly lines in factories, it becomes possible to produce an awful lot more equipment. And it wasn't just guns. It was boots. It was caps. It was shoes. You know, it was whatever people needed to fight with. And what you also got, of course, is the capacity to move them through railways and later on through things like cars and trucks and, and so on. And you got, I think, a motivating force, and that was important in, in, in many cases in nationalism, you know, people feeling a passionate attachment to something called the nation, which... I don't think we, we, we didn't see as much in the 18th century. I mean, this is really something that comes in the 19th century. And so people are prepared to, to, to fight and die for this abstraction called the nation. And so you get the means to fight bigger wars, but you also get the motivation to fight wars, that people will actually support such wars. And so it was as much about a, a state's um, industrial capacity and economic stability um, as it is their military capability. Yes, I think it is. I think it's, you know, you can have all sorts of brave people, but if they don't have guns and they don't have the boots to march on and they're not being fed properly, you know, e even the bravest people can't fight for long under such circumstances if they don't have the tools. And what Europe and, and the industrial nations of the world did was produce an enormous capacity um, to do all sorts of things. They produced a capacity to produce consumer goods. They produced a capacity to make lives better for lots of people. But unfortunately, Along with that, they produce the capacity to kill people on literally an industrial scale. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. 
That there will be war in the future, I think, is almost certain. And I don't say this with any pleasure. But we have military establishments, we have political leaders, we have thinkers who are assuming that there are going to be wars and they're making plans for wars. Now, that doesn't mean you necessarily get a war, but the temptation is always there to try and settle differences by force. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another term that's thrown around a lot when we talk about modern war is total war. I wonder if you could explain for listeners a little bit about what that involves and when you see it emerging in this story of war. Well, total war was emerging, I think, in the course of the 19th century. And I suppose you can look at earlier wars when when societies at large get involved. But it's a phrase that really begins to be used at the time of the First World War because the First World War was so big and lasted for so long that people said we need a new way of describing it. And what they meant by total war, and I think you can say that the Second World War was also total war, what they meant by it was a war that drew in virtually all aspects of society, that it was no longer confined to those who were actually fighting. In 18th century wars, you sent your navy off, you sent your army off with the equipment it needed, pretty much, and it did whatever it did, it won, it lost, and then the war was over. But what you get in the 19th and, and certainly in the 20th centuries with the two world wars are wars that need to be constantly resupplied and replenished. And governments which had already grown strong, partly because they had been fighting wars, I mean, the the growth of strong government is very much tied up with the need to organize society for wars, increasingly drew on the resources in society. And they drew on resources such as women's labor, which they hadn't properly used before. And they, they drew on resources raw materials. They, you know, governments began to take control over economies and say, no, you can't use that particular raw material to produce consumer goods. We need it for the military. And so governments took a high degree of control over society and they squeezed out resources. They also squeezed out money. You know, The reason the taxes went up um, in the 20th century was very largely because of the need to fight wars initially. You know, said in the First World War, you know, we'll, we'll tax during the war, or, you know, add, add something to the income tax or whatever. And then, of course, it'll go back to normal in peacetime. Well, it never quite did go back to normal. Um, governments discovered that there was far more wealth in society that they could squeeze out of it than, than they had suspected. And once governments know that, it's very hard to go back and say, well, you know, we won't spend any more money. We won't ask for any more money. And so what total war means, I think, is, is as much as possible mobilizing the resources of society in any sort of way, the brains, the capacities, the money, the resor- materials for war. But what it also means is what you do to the other side. You're no longer just going after the people who are fighting on the other side. You're going after the whole social and economic structure and political structure that's supporting them. And so increasingly, we see attacks on civilians. We see attacks on civilian housing when when people can can do it, and they can by the Second World War. Increasingly, we see attempts to undermine the morale on the other side and to undermine the confidence of people in their own governments. And so war really becomes something of society against society. 
on the point of that changing mentality, how have ideas about the acceptability, the acceptable boundaries of war changed over time? I think it, it, well, it was always acceptable to attack civilians and there were always attempts to limit that. I mean, it's always been a fluctuation and we've we've made, I mean, it may seem futile, but we've made attempt after attempt after attempt to try and limit war and, and indeed outlaw it. But what I think made a difference in the 20th century was that it became possible to get at the other society in ways that it hadn't been possible before. I mean, in the Napoleonic Wars, the British imposed a blockade on Europe and that did affect the capacity of Napoleon's France to fight the war. But the means of actually disrupting societies on the other side are just so much greater in the 20th century. And think of today, you know, cyber war is a whole new area. A cyber war could actually knock out all the computer capacity and the internet capacity of a whole society with, with of course, enormous consequences. And so I think it's a combination of, of capacity and um, willingness to do it. And as I say, we've always seen through history attempts to say, no, you really mustn't attack certain sorts of people. You know, in the Middle Ages, um, for example, the church was always trying to say, no, you mustn't attack priests, for example. And um, you know, there were rules, there must be, you mustn't fight on holy days. And so the, the attempts are there. It, 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 it seems very odd. I mean, we, we accept war or many societies accept war, but then we promptly turn around and try and limit it. And I think we still see it. I mean, we have all the Geneva Conventions um, about how civilians should be treated. And so there is a body of law, but we often ignore it. So it's more about changing means rather than changing morality. I think it's probably more about changing means. Um, You know, I think you can look back in the past and you can see um, attacks on civilians. I mean, in the Middle Ages and even later, they used to do something called the chevauchee, which you'd basically, to try, you, you know, you'd have a sort of, strong man or feudal lord or somebody holed up in his castle and you couldn't get at him. So what you do is devastate the countryside around and you kill his workers, his farmers, the people on his farms. And this was a way of forcing him to surrender. And so, no, attacking civilians has a very, very long history in history. But again, you know, we keep on making these attempts to say that civilians and others shouldn't be attacked. Um, on those, On your point of ad- attempts to regulate war, have these ever been successful? There are some successes, and I think we have to cling to those. I mean, we have to hope that there have been some successes. Um, you know, the, the, the Greeks had days, the ancient Greeks had days on which they would not fight um, because these were sacred holidays. And they had sort of regulations about when you ended fighting and when one side would concede. Rather, rather I suppose, like a sporting event, you know, so many goals, and then you have to say, okay, you won the match. Um, and so, yes, I think sometimes they, they, these have been successful. And I think the ways in which civilians are treated and the ways in which prisoners of war, for example, are treated, we have now got a body of law about that. And it does sometimes work. But then you get cases, you know, in the Second World War, the Nazis treated soldiers, French captured soldiers, British captured soldiers, and so on, from the West, reasonably, because they saw them as as racially similar. But in the East, where they saw their prisoners, who were largely Slavs, of course, as racially inferior, they simply ignored all the rules. And so the rules are there, but you have to have a willingness to pay attention to them. Civil wars have often been seen as the biggest affront um, to society. Why do you think that that is? Civil wars are almost the worst, I think. I mean, if you have a hierarchy of wars, I mean, none of them are great, but civil wars are family war. And it's about the family possession the, the, the nation, which which both sides claim is theirs and claim to be representing. And it's also about 
who are we and what are we? And there's a feeling of betrayal and anger at the other side because they're not accepting that vision. They're, they're saying either, you know, we, we want to secede, as in the case of, of the Biafran War in the 1960s in, in Nigeria. We don't want to be part of this nation anymore. And, and so, you know, the, the resentment of those who don't want to see secession happen is enormous. The nation is being destroyed. Or we don't want to secede, but we have a different view about the sort of government we want and the, and the sort of society we want. And so it's it's an existential struggle. It's it's a struggle which I think is particularly bitter because you're part of the same family. How can they be seeing this? How can they be claiming this? How can they not want to be part of us any longer? How can they have a different vision of the future? No, and so civil wars are dreadful. And I think often in a civil war, you see the other side not just as made up of those who are actually fighting, but the whole the whole bunch. You know, it's the mothers, it's the children, it's the old people, it's the parents. They're all part of this terrible group who want to destroy what you hold important. In the introduction to the book, you talk about the fact that in the West, many people pat themselves on the back at the idea of this long peace since 1945. But in reality, there's been um, that's been far from a reality for many people across the globe, as there's been a whole lot of warfare since 1945. Mm. Do you think that it is the case that humanity has become less violent, or is that not the case at all? Well, there's a huge debate about whether we're more violent or less. I mean, Steven Pinker has argued, and others have argued, that we're getting less violent, that we're becoming uh, gentler people, that there's less domestic violence in, in many countries. If you look at things like um, the treatment of animals, as, as Pinker does, you know, we used to have things like bear baiting and cockfighting, and a lot of countries now have outlawed such things. But how do you count it? And I think violence between people and societies is one thing, and that may be, be limited, but organized violence, which is what war is, is really a different sort of thing. And I think we've enjoyed a long period of peace in the West, but perhaps we have not looked closely enough at ourselves and at the rest of the world. And Northern Ireland hasn't been peaceful for a very long time, but it's, it's seen very much as part of the West, which has enjoy, enjoyed this long peace. And if you think of what happened in Yugoslavia, in the 1990s, that was not something that was part of a long peace. And of course, what we've also done is, is, in a sense, we've exported war to other parts of the world. Western countries have fought in other parts of the world, the French and the Americans in, in Indochina, for example, or they have funded groups in other parts of the world to, to prolong wars there. And so, no, I don't think we should see this period as, as free from violence. I mean, certain societies have been fortunate enough not to experience it at home. But we've also seen, even in, in what are meant to be peaceful countries, prolonged civil unrest with a lot of violence. I mean, if you think of some of the Latin American countries, for example, you know, that they have not, Latin America has not seen a major state-to-state -state war for a very long time, but it's had an awful lot of internal and very violent conflict. What place do you think that war holds in our current imagination? Um, in Britain, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say there. Well, it's curious, isn't it? I mean, I think um, Britain is fascinated, or the British public seems to be fascinated by some of the wars of the past, not all. Um, you know, public memory is, is curiously selective. We fix on certain things and not others, and, and why this should be so, I think, is, is an interesting question. The British certainly think a lot about the First World War, and I wonder if that is possibly because it was a war which they were extremely important in. It was a war in which they were on the winning side, they came out of that war still a world power. And so the First World War could be seen, I think, as, as an important war for Britain. But it's also, of course, seen as a war that was enormously costly and, and possibly futile. 
The Second World War, I think the British think about, but it's it's more complicated because Britain comes out of the Second World War very much a second-class power and its empire is either disappearing or about to disappear. What I find curious is that it's only bits of those two wars that the British public focus on. I mean, if you talk to a lot of people about the First World War, their images of the trenches, of the mud, the writers they know about the First World War are the people like Wilfred Owen and, and Robert Graves. And it's probably the first day of the Battle of the Somme that is for a lot of British people the quintessential moment of the war. And, and that is interesting because it overlooks the very important war at sea, the naval war. It overlooks the fighting in the Middle East. It overlooks the fighting in other parts of the Western Front. It doesn't really, that sort of view doesn't really take into account um, the fighting on the Eastern Front, where, of course, it wasn't British soldiers. In the Second World War, what I think is interesting is that the British public's interest seems to be mainly in two things. Um, and although there are others, but certainly Dunkirk, which is seen as an enormous moment when the nation came together to save its soldiers. And, and I think, you know, it is an important moment. But the second thing is D-Day, when British and other troops landed back on the continent. What struck me in the recent VJD celebrations was that people kept talking about the forgotten war in the East and the forgotten soldiers of the East. And it, I think it is true in a way that, you know, we, we, we take certain episodes in wars and they become for us symbolic of the war as a whole. But it means that we don't always look at the at, at the rest of the actual war and what actually happened. Well, that is a tricky issue that you um, try and untangle here, how we should memorialise wars, because often they have a very contested legacy. And it's, it's a very difficult balancing act between honouring those involved and also not valorising war too much. What do you think about that? It is a difficult balancing act. And and I've, I've seen it myself. I mean, you know, in, in Canada, we had a quite a controversy over a war museum, which had panels on the Second World War suggesting that the mass bombing of Germany had not been effective and, and may well have been um, counterproductive or indeed a war crime. And a lot of people said, well, you're criticizing the brave airmen who flew over Germany. How can you do this? They were heroes. And I think my point and, and the point of other historians was, no, we, we recognize the bravery, but that doesn't mean the cause or the, the, the strategy in which they were using that bravery was necessarily the right one. And I think we have to be prepared to discuss that. And what worries me always is when history is brought into present political controversies, because it's used in a way which tends to flatten it out. And so in the run-up to the referendum, for example, in the UK, over whether to remain or, or leave the European Union, the experience of Britain in, in war was, was brought in quite a bit. And, and the Leave side said things like, you know, we fought alone before, we've been independent before, think of us at, at, at Dunkirk and D-Day. And as a Canadian, I kept on saying that, you know, there's more to it than that. You know, it wasn't just Britain, the British Isles fighting alone, it was the empire. And there were four Canadian divisions here. There were Australians fighting in the Middle East and the Far East. You know, there were millions of, of, of people from around the, the, the empire, Indian soldiers, African soldiers. And it seemed to me that that was using history, flattening it out and, and you know, not doing justice to the complexity of the past. Um, but it happens all the time. I mean, people will use history for their own purposes. And I suppose in a way, the role of the historians is to be that boring voice that says, no, wait a minute, it wasn't quite like that. In the conclusion to the book, you take a fairly terrifying look, I'm going to say, at what you think the future of war could possibly involve. What do you foresee? Well, it's such an interesting question, and I think there's been a lot of discussion about it. Um, 
That there will be war in the future, I think, is almost certain. And I don't say this with any pleasure, but we have military establishments, we have political leaders, we have thinkers who are assuming that they're going to be wars and they're making plans for wars. Now, that doesn't mean you necessarily get a war, but the temptation is always there to try and settle differences by force. What I suspect we're going to see, but predicting the future is always a difficult business, is at the one end, a growth of very high-tech war. I mean, war that's becoming increasingly automated is relying increasingly on artificial intelligence, war that moves into space. I'm afraid we're already seeing that happening in spite of international treaties. War that moves into the cyber world, and indeed we're already seeing that happening. I mean, this is very high-tech and, and very costly war. I mean, it, well, costly in the sense that you, you've got to invest in it and you've got to have the people with the training who can do it. But I suspect what we may see at the other extreme is continuing low-level wars, wars that rumble on and which often get overlooked by the rest of the world. The, the wars that have rumbled on around the Great Lakes in Africa, um, the continuing wars in Afghanistan, the continuing conflict in, in Syria, the continuing conflict in other parts of the Middle East. And these wars will continue to kill large numbers of people. They will not be high-tech wars by and large, although occasionally high-tech weaponry will be involved. But, you know, in conflict, you don't need, as, as we've seen through history, you don't need high-tech weapons to kill other people. A lot of the killings in Rwanda were done with, with machetes and hoes. And so I think we're going to continue to see that sort of war as we continue to see war also moving into new and highly advanced areas. I mean, I think we need to think really, really seriously about this because I think, the, of course, the capacity of war now, particularly, of course, at the high technology end to destroy the planet and, and to destroy humanity is, is that much greater than it was even 10 years ago. You know, the, and, and I worry about such things as nuclear proliferation, which, you know, is something that is probably going to happen. And nuclear weapons are now much stronger, much easier to deliver and you know, easier to acquire the technology than they were again during the Cold War. And so, the, yes, this, this worries me. But I do think war has, and I think it's a dangerous thing, has a sort of glamour. You know, if you go into bookshops, there are so many books about war. And if you look at video games, there are so many video games which are effectively games about war. And I think for a lot of people, there still is this fascination and glamour of war. And I think the less they know about it in the way in a way, it's the easier it is to be beguiled by it. And I do think that is possibly dangerous, you know, because I think unless we understand how awful war is, we're inclined to take it lightly and, and under, underestimate the risks. That was Margaret Macmillan. Her book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us, is out now, published in the UK by Profile. You can read a version of this interview in the December issue of BBC History magazine. That's out now, and it also includes features on the Viking mindset, Hitler and Stalin, Crusader Queens, the white ship disaster, and plenty more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for another lecture from our History Weekend events.